0: What's up, Funkers? We're back. I got Max G, Max Gagliardi, a fellow podcaster in the oil and gas space, a true influencer, as a matter of fact, somebody who I've wanted to have on this podcast for quite a while. So I think this is going to be a
1: fun one. Fun. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure.
0: So... You've got a lot going on. I know you've got this Ankova thing. You're building out a little bit of tech right now. You've got the podcast, which it sounds like you're shifting a little bit from just oil and gas energy centric to being a little bit more broad toward builders, creators. But before we get into all that, what we do on What The Funk is we just sort of get to know the people. And I want to know who you are, right? I think you're an Oklahoma kid. I saw you went to Oklahoma State, ended up at Chesapeake. But I want to hear kind of your upbringing? Where'd you grow up? And then what inspired you to kind of go down this path of entrepreneurship and your hands in, you know, eight or 10 different buckets?
1: Sure. Well, uh, Max Gagliardi grew up in Oklahoma my whole life. I was born in the Tulsa area and uh, moved to Oklahoma City area about ninth grade. My dad's an oil and gas geologist. And so he got a new job, you know, how it goes in the industry. And we moved the family over here, And then graduated uh, here in Edmond and then went to Oklahoma State and was there. And that was kind of my first... I actually got a hospitality degree. A lot of people don't know that in my undergrad and then didn't know what I wanted to do and ended up getting an internship in the oil and gas space and went and got an MBA. It was like right when the great financial crisis was hitting and the job prospects were dim. And I was just like, I'm just going to re-enroll and try to intern somewhere again. And then uh, that was actually a good move. I mean, I don't recommend getting an MBA right out of school. I think MBAs are kind of, they're okay. I think you can learn a lot more doing just like real world stuff. But it worked out for me because I got the job at Chesapeake. And that was just this massive launching point for my career. And it's really fortunate because I have kind of a business background with, uh, with what I'd studied. And so I got into what they call the commercial group, which is basically the liaison between the people drilling the wells or our operating group at Chesapeake. And then all the midstream and downstream counterparties and negotiating those contracts, coordinating the well connects. And I just got to do a lot of different things in that role. Cause it's like, you kind of have to know a little bit about everything um, because you're dealing with all the different groups. You're dealing with drilling and production. You're dealing with the land people you're dealing with finance. You're dealing with uh, the accounting groups Uh, You're even dealing with the geologists like you're, you know, they're out prospecting some new area. And it's like, do we have takeaway? Do we have infrastructure? So you're kind of get to, you know, have your finger in the pie in a bunch of different areas. And that was super interesting to me, Felt very fortunate to get put into that position because there's a lot of things in the business world and uh, in oil and gas that I just wasn't very interested in. Mm. And so I just felt like I was kind of lucky. And then I was also lucky because Chesapeake at the time was just going crazy. We had, I think at the peak, maybe 165, 170 rigs. And so there was just so much activity going on. I was primarily working in the mid-continent at the time so kind of Oklahoma Texas and we had like 60 something rigs going in our group and I think that like if you would have taken just our drill schedule that would have been like the second largest drilling company or active company in the U.S. just the, the subset of what we had going on just in the group I was in so got to drink from a fire hose and learn a bunch of stuff and then I you know then the a bunch of things happened. like the company started having some rough waters. Uh, Aubrey left or got ousted kind of, and then he went and started American Energy Partners. I hung out there for a while uh, with the new management team. got to kind of see what one of these giant corporate change uh, things is like and got to be part of the Bobs coming in and doing all this stuff. And when the new management came in, it was you know it was fine, but it was uh, not really what I'd signed up for when I got there. and so I went and joined Aubrey over at AEP. I actually okay. just emailed him. He was one of those guys that was like, I don't care how big or small you were on the totem pole. He really prided himself on answering people's emails. Like he would respond to you, even if it was just a really short response. And so I remember sending him my resume and being like, Hey, I want to come over and join you guys are doing. And he was like, sitting in the Thunder Game courtside. And I could see him typing on his phone. And I just get an email back right away. And he's like, Send it to our HR lady and we'll get you in. And so, yeah, it's pretty crazy. And uh, a lot of people have stories like that with him. He's just one of these guys that was kind of, he just really prided himself on, uh, connecting with people and went over there. And it was like, I was only over there for about six or seven months. And it was just kind of a, not really a great situation. They bought a bunch of assets when oil was really high and then um, things got rough and our group kind of got shuffled around and I basically got let go. Like me and my boss and a bunch of people in our group, like they split everything out into business units. And I effectively got given like a package after I'd been there for like seven months. And so for me, this was something that I'd never experienced. Like my whole career, I'd been kind of on this upward trajectory. Even like when I was younger, I had had a lot of jobs and just had never been let go from anything. I just was somebody that was very dedicated to what I was doing. So at the time, I was like, this is like a really bad thing. You know, it's a really, you know, bad moment in my career. And it ended up being like the best thing that's ever happened to me. I kind of I uh, took about a week or two off just sort of, you know, playing golf and hanging out. I applied for a few jobs online and I've told this story before, but my dad was like, what are you doing? And I was like, "Uh, oh, you know, I played golf with my buddies and did this. And he's like, he's like, that's not doing enough. He's like, you need to do more. He's like, go make a business. He's like, go make business cards. He's like, make an LLC. He's like, learn how to do that. He's like, learn how to start that up. He's like, you need to quit position, position yourself as a consultant today And I was kind of like, aren't consultants just people that are like unemployed, but then they act like they're, he's like, no, he's like, don't care about what other people think about you. He's like, just position yourself as a consultant. He's like, it'll open up more doors. Like instead of just looking for full-time things, you can now also, you know, start pitching a bunch of people and being like, Hey, if you don't have a full-time role, I can help you. And then like within a week or two, um, after doing that, I kind of landed my first consulting gig and realized the power behind consulting that you can make, you know, quite a bit more on a like an hourly basis than you would make working at a full time job, and I was like, "Well, this is cool." Um, and so, started working there uh, pretty quickly after the AEP thing. I was working with like a mid sized producer that just needed uh, the services that I had, but didn't have it internally, and didn't really want to hire somebody. So, started doing that, and then my old VP Mark Edge uh, left Chesapeake, and we went and grabbed a beer. He's 30 years my senior. And he's like, hey, I've got some leads on some consulting stuff. And I was like, well, I'm doing some consulting stuff. And it's like, well, maybe we could work on some of these things together. And so for about the first month, maybe three or four weeks, we kind of just were now approaching people more as like a team. Like, hey, like we're, you know, we're both available. but We were kind of billing separately at first. And then like one turned into two, turned into three, turned into four clients, like within a very fast time period. We're like, okay, like we need to, we got to like, you know, create an LLC and create a partnership. And start pitching this more as a company. And then it just kind of moved forward from there. And like we went to half a dozen clients and a dozen clients. We started having to hire people like within that first year. And then we, in 2016, we started Encova Energy Marketing. So Encova Energy was the first company. And then that was a consulting business. And then Encova Energy Marketing was the uh, physical marketing business. So we actually we had clients being like, why don't you just market our product? Like you're doing everything else for us. Um, and at the time, we had a chance okay. to bring in uh the old one of our old employees at uh Chesapeake who's a rock star to head up the marketing group and she had marketed like three and a half bees a day at chesapeake and so we brought her in and um started up the marketing group and that was in two thousand sixteen so that was about two years later uh a little less than two years about a year and a half later and then uh that kind of grew and we uh started staffing up and we got to i think at that point we had like eight or nine employees and then in uh 2018, we went out and got some private equity funding and we're chasing like some midstream deals and spent a few years, we got like a $200 million commitment from a private equity group. And I joke around, I'm like, I don't know if that was good or bad timing. Um, it was like good timing in the sense that we uh, got the, uh, it was like bad timing in the sense that midstream got really challenging then. It was like the term started getting so bad that like no one could make any money because it got so competitive and guys were doing crazy things like paying way too much for assets or just doing stuff that like we didn't think made sense. It was kind of good timing because we only did one deal that was kind of small. We exited it and then COVID hit. And it was like, man, we're really glad we didn't spend all this money because uh, yeah. we would be in a really bad spot. Like a lot of guys were in a really bad spot um, kind of after COVID. And even to now, like midstream's really not recovered back to where it was. And then our sponsor was like, well, we thought, well, they're going to pull the plug. And we still have the other businesses going, but we had like pulled up a management team just for the pipeline stuff and the midstream stuff. And they were like, we want you guys to look at the energy transition. And we were like, okay, so don't know really what we'll do there. So we we kicked around a bunch of things, looked at carbon capture. I uh, looked at the services side. It actually got pretty close on what I thought was a really interesting uh, company that had kind of a green angle to it. Uh, but ultimately ended up winding that down with those guys. And then that was like 2021. And they just kind of refocused on our core business. And one thing that we made a commitment to back in 2020 was to do uh, focus more on tech. And... That's kind of when the uh, genesis of this product we have now called Encova View started, and we realized we had all this data and we had you know we're doing all these processes. it's all manual. We also saw the problems that big companies had that do what we do, and we knew the pain points of working for a big company and not having you know any of these tools like in a tech-based format. So we started you know kind of building it internally. We have some we're very fortunate to have some employees that are very tech savvy. And uh, they started putting together some things on the back end about a couple of years ago. And it started out kind of on the contract side, then it moved to the production side. And we just was slowly building up that tech stack and then really kind of rolling it out and testing it on the existing clients that we had. Mm -hmm. And that was great for us because a lot of tech companies, you know, they don't have, um, you're trying to go to market and you're basically guinea pigging, you know, on brand new customers. Whereas we could guinea pig and test it out on uh, existing clients and give it to them for free. And then we found out that they really liked it. And so that's kind of, uh, and we can get into the view product later. But um, started that, and then that was also when the podcast started. And um, again, I was just kind of like, I need to lean into tech. I'm not using media. I'm not using technology at all to like get get the word out. And a similar story to a lot of people, it was COVID, and you couldn't go to conferences, you couldn't go to dinners, you couldn't do all these things. And so, so how do I connect with people? And so, kind of mid 2020, it took me like a while to hit posts on the first one, but I started kind of planning it. And then started recording them in like November, December 2020, okay. banked up a few, and then launched it in January of 2021. And so it's been a little over two years on the podcast. Um, the other things that we've done, we've got some other stuff, uh, like the Bitcoin stuff. We've got a little Bitcoin mine that we put together. And that's a whole story of people coming to us and asking for our expertise on the gas marketing and midstream side and saying, can you find this natural gas to mine Bitcoin with, which we didn't know anything about at the time, but we quickly learned it and then decided, hey, uh, let's do some of this ourselves. And so we've got that company. It's fair, fairly small. It's big for us, but fairly small in the grand scheme of the Bitcoin world. Um, and then we've also got a bunch of cool, like real estate stuff that we're doing on the yeah. side. And my partners invested in a lot of that. I've also got some other partners, a couple that are out of Dallas and one here out of Oklahoma City. Uh, they're kind of the, the main partners. And then we've got a bunch of investors that are kind of friends, colleagues, things like that, people that saw what we were doing. Um, and we raised a little fund uh, for the real estate stuff. And we've got some really cool cabins that we're building. And then we've got a a really awesome, uh, waterfront development that we're working on today. And there's some other things we do, like just angel investing type stuff on the side, like the distillery. We've got these bottles. You can't see them back here because it's blurred Mm -hmm. out. But, um, woodworks distillery is a new distillery in Oklahoma city that just opened up. And I'm more passive in that, but, uh, it's fun to the management team is great. And it's fun to promote it because it's like, uh, I can promote oil and gas stuff and that's great. But, um, you know, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people like good spirits. And so that's a fun (laughs) one to push on social media. So uh, to conclude all that, I know I rambled there, but I want to give the full background. But basically, I just got kind of forced to be in the entrepreneurship um, path. I always sort of knew that I wanted to do it. I kind of fantasized about it. And I was very um, fortunate to have my wife who's very supportive and was like, if you're going to do it, go do it. Um, And just kind of Built it sort of, you know, mostly self funded. You know, we did have that equity commitment, but outside of that, it's been a lot of it self funded. I mean, we own the companies that the Ancova companies outright, and even in the real estate stuff, um, you know, a lot of it were like the uh, river development, you know, it's mostly owned by us. And then the fund, we own a big chunk of that as well. So just have kind of been fortunate to be in these positions where I can sort of steer the ship for better or for worse. I mean, I think on the outside looking in, it looks really fun, but entrepreneurship can be pretty gritty. And so anyways, that's, uh, and we can talk about it later, but that's kind of the story and um, what we've got going on now.
0: I love it. I love it. And it is a lot, <laughs> like no doubt. And, and I see how this happens myself being <laughs> an entrepreneur. It started for me with, you know, it, there's a lot of actually things that, that you said that make us kindred spirits. I'll jump into that in just a second. But when I first went to market with my first entrepreneurial venture, Funk Futures, it was just to do contract sales. And help companies, mostly up and coming oil and gas tech, uh, technology companies, with gaining a foothold in the market. Well, then people started asking for help with their marketing content, video creation. What about recruiting? Mm right and then now i'm involved in two different tech companies so i see how this spirals and people start coming to you cuz they view you as right. okay you're not afraid to put yourself out there you can add benefit to what it is that we're doing and before you know it you're like okay what is my business right or or what are my businesses in right. your case and in my case i think there were two things that i want to touch on that i find really fascinating that i would actually consider breaks that you had, whether you realized it or not early in your career. One, I think is the role at Chesapeake and to make a, um, comparison to mm-hmm. football coaches. If you look at some of the best football coaches, like even active today, you've got, you got Bill Belichick, right? You've got Harbaugh for the Ravens. What they had in common is that they both gained their, their bearings as coaches, as special teams coaches and what a special teams coaches do. They work mm. with all sides of the ball. Right, you're working with offensive players, you're working with defensive players, and you're talking to all of them the same way. Right, football is very, very split in terms of how these conversations go. You've got your meetings for your receivers, your meetings for the offense, your meetings for the quarterbacks, they don't do a lot with the defense, but special teams is everyone, right? So, you were really fortunate, I think, early on in your career to touch the midstream side, have a view into upstream, talk to executives. Talk to people that were working in the back office as well as the field. So, whether you realize it or not, that I think no doubt. set you up for some success in your entrepreneurial ventures down the road because you had to get comfortable talking to everybody and understanding how your messaging would get across to all those people. That's one. Two is yeah, oh, 100%. La- Definitely. Yeah. Two is that you got laid off. And, and this happened to me too. And I'll never forget it. It was Valentine's yeah. Day of 2007. And I was in sales and the company wasn't great. I sort of knew that, that the finances weren't all that solid. And I remember my boss coming up to me at the end of the day. He's like, hey, man, listen, you can sell. This isn't really my choice, but like, we're going to have to lay you off. And I was just thinking like, oh, my God, like what a failure I am. Yeah. How is this going to happen? And I was, I think, 26 years old, maybe 27 and it was the best thing that happened because it sort of desensitized me to that happening again in the future. The first time you're like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I'm unhirable. Who's going to want to to pay me money? Just I'm a loser, right? You get these thoughts that start to build. And then a couple weeks later, somebody offers you 20% more to do a job that you like more. And you're like, okay. So it's actually happened a few yeah. times. I've been laid off, whether it was market conditions, whether it was the right company, whether it was my performance, it happens. And I think it sort of just desensitized me to the point where I'm like, okay, I'm going to be a little less emotional and more pragmatic about my approach. And I think you were fortunate to have had that experience like with what you probably thought was going to be a company you could really grow with, right? You've got Aubrey McClendon, you've got American Energy Partners, you've got big funding. Oklahoma City was really kind of growing 2014, 2015, in that period of time. And then you're like, oh, shit. Right. So I think those two things happening now that I'm getting to know you more and, and you know, following you from a business perspective and, and a personal side of things, like, I think those things helped you. And I'm curious to think, to, to see what you feel about those as you look back on your time, A, at Chesapeake and then B, getting laid off from AEP. Like, how do you think those experiences have benefited you and, and hardened you effectively for what you've done right. subsequently?
1: They're huge. And I think the Chesapeake thing, it was the getting all the experience doing different things. I think it was right place, right time around being at the most active driller, second largest producer, natural gas. Just um, there was also the cultural aspect of it. Like mm. they were very good at propping young people up, letting them, um, you know, basically, if you were good, then you could like take on as much as you, you know, you could do. And so you got to, you know, you got to get in front of management. You got to, you know, take on projects and do things that most people, you know, I had worked in another uh, bigger midstream company. And they were very old school. It was kind of like, oh, you want to be in commercial? They're like, well, you know, put in 20 years and then, you know, you can apply. Right. And it was like, you start off at this grunt role and you work your way up. And it was uh, almost like a hazing thing because all the people that were in that yeah. group had been there for a long period of time and you just weren't going to get in. And so the fact that I could just go in and get into this role and start out as an analyst, but got promoted within like six or seven months, something like that. We got promoted up to like a rep. And like at a lot of companies, that was something you had to have 10 years experience. And actually, in a weird way, the experience that I got at Chesapeake basically made me unhirable because whenever I lost the job at AEP, I couldn't even apply for jobs because I would look at the you know the role and say, okay, this is my exact role that i have been in of my whole career. And they were like minimum 15 years. Like you can't even apply for it. So <laughs> I'm going through trying to apply for jobs. And it was like all these, you know, online forms where you have to, I mean, they won't even let you get to the, you can't even fill out the form. It's like you have to select and you have 15 years experience. You can't even apply. So it was almost like, I can't even get a job um, doing what I do because I had so much experience at a young age, which seems crazy, but it actually kind of put me in a position to where like, the only way that I could get that value and do the role I was doing was to, you know, maybe find a niche or a company where they would let me in or just do it for myself. Sure. And then I think that getting the, let, getting let go is a really valuable experience. I mean, I don't wish that on anyone because it's, it's hard to deal with, but at the same time, um, that's when you really, like, really figure out who you are and like kind of what you're made of. And you also get, it's a very humbling experience. And I think that that's important. I think in business, I've said it before, it's like get humbled and do it quickly. Cause like you're going to at some point. So yeah. the faster you can do that, then the better off you're going to be. And then I also just the luck around, um, the luck around the timing of it. Like when what we were doing in 2014, everyone's like, you know, oh, oil prices crashed. Like we started the company, it was at 80 bucks. And then, like six months from then, it was 30 bucks. <laughs> and, you know, but that same time, there was all this like private equity money and private investment coming into the space. And so, those were a lot of our bread and butter clients early on. So, we got fortunate. There's a bunch of things that broke our way. Uh, we've been very fortunate with the success of our clients, it's been a huge thing because it's like you can have. You know, you can do the best job ever, but if your client's failing, then they're going to fire you because they're failing, right? So it's like, you get lucky to get with successful groups, and then you kind of ride the coattails of that. Uh, We've had some clients that have just had phenomenal success, and we've got to be a part of it. And that's really exciting. Um, And still to this day, have clients that are doing amazing things. And that's great um, for us. And so I think you're right. I mean, I think I always try to credit luck wherever I can, um, because you can put yourself in the right position. But ultimately, um, you know, luck plays a huge role.
0: Yeah, no, no, no question about it. Um, so when I first started following you, I think it was on Twitter where I found you first. You were, you were putting out some really cool drone-centric content of like homes in Broken Bow, Oklahoma, Broken yeah, Arrow, broken Oklahoma, up. something like that. Yeah, and it actually looked to me a lot like where I grew up in New Hampshire. And I'm like, I didn't even realize that Oklahoma had areas that looked like this. But you really put like a unique spin on how you've created and cultivated interest around these uh, these homes, these rentals, these real estate properties. Talk about that a little bit and some of the passion you've had for, I guess, video, um, but also creating demand through being a little bit different in terms of how you push some of these rentals and properties to market.
1: Well, definitely. I mean, I think one thing I learned when I started doing the media stuff was that it was a great creative outlet for me. And I grew up as kind of a creative, uh, played music growing up. I don't play as much anymore. Every once in a while, I'll get the instruments out, but always have had a creative itch and lost it a little bit, you know, whenever I was working in the corporate world. And even with Ankova, it was like, you know, I mean, midstream marketing, EMP stuff. It's a little dry. Um, There's creativity involved. Don't get me wrong. You can be creative in the business world, no matter what you're doing, but it's not the same type of creativeness that um, that I love and I felt like with the media stuff it really gave me a chance to, uh, to to scratch that itch and to do it in a way that's you know for business and then the uh, and then the video editing I mean, I have people now that help me with the podcast but like I had to learn it first because I was like I'm not gonna pay someone I was like I need to figure this out and so I had some experience doing audio editing as, as, as when I was younger and so it translated really well to the video side and so uh, I've done I wish I could do more vlogs it just takes so much time to do the vlogs. Right. But I enjoy them, and um and so with the drone stuff, it just started you know we were doing these real estate projects, buying these cabins and renting them out, and it was like this is a really cool thing to video, and that's just, that's the thing with media, like whether it's like video or pictures, is that you kind of have to go see cool things it's uh like I can sit around in my house and get the drone up or drive you know it's like my normal day I'm like in my neighborhood or at my office. And like anywhere in between, there's not that much to like video uh, or take pictures of, right? So it's like a lot of these really popular, for example, travel vlogs, it's like, because they're always going amazing places. And so uh, Broken Bow, Oklahoma is like this little corner, uh, southeast corner of Oklahoma. I had actually didn't even know. I mean, I knew I'd heard of it, but like didn't even visit there until later in life, like 2019. Um, So I was, you know, this is only four years ago. And when I went down there, I was like, "This is incredible." I was like, "This place doesn't even look like Oklahoma. It looks like Colorado. Totally. Um, it really like it looks a lot like Arkansas. If you've been to Arkansas, yeah." But I also was going to say, "It and like Arkansas." It reminded, yeah, yeah, it reminded me like almost like this like little mini Colorado in Oklahoma, and um, or as close as you could get here. What's crazy about that area is that um, it's almost all Dallas, Fort Worth, North Texas people that visit there. It's like the percentage of visitors is like eighty five percent. Um, And at least with the metrics that we see uh, from our management companies, it's like 85% Dallas, uh, kind of North Texas area. So if you think about it, that part of the world, there's not really many places close. I mean, it's like a two and a half hour drive from North Texas. If you're like the heart of Dallas, maybe it's like three hours. Um, But it's like a two and a half to three hour drive for them. And it's like, where else can they go? That's that close. That looks that gorgeous. And so... um, so, you know, use the media stuff. And honestly, the other thing I'll say about this before we move off the topic is that it's been the highest ROI um, on the media stuff. People are always like, oh, what's, uh like, do you make money on the podcast? And like, I've had sponsors on it. I don't have any right now. I've been talking to a few companies. I just haven't really pushed it that much. Yeah, same. Um, mm-hmm. For a lot of different reasons when you get into it later. Um, I just kind of do it because it's, it's I have a passion for it. And I love having good conversations with interesting people. And I think it leads to good things. But the skills that i've learned around media um the most money i've made from media has hands down been the real estate stuff cuz it's like this river development you know uh, you know the the properties are they're expensive and so we're you know we're targeting kind of high net worth individuals it's like a luxury resort style community and th- so we go down there and we take like drone shots and take videos and we put together like a hype video vlog and i hired like a voice actor to come in and like do the video and um that was just a little project and then we posted it, like we put it on the website and then we also posted it like on Facebook and like these investor groups. Cause they have these groups that like, uh, that, you know, they invest in that area. And then I also posted it on Twitter. And from that, you know, we're at like 15 lot sales and we just, or at there least is. under contract, they have, all haven't closed yet. And they, and we started it in like end of October, you know, we don't have the roads finished yet. So people. some people <laughs> were buying them like sight unseen. And so, and that's in like a, and that's in like a really harsh real estate environment. Like because like rates have gone up and real estate's like, it's in a down market right now. And so I think that what I found with the media stuff is that if you have something valuable to sell, whether that's the stuff we do at Ancova, whether that's the real estate stuff, whether whatever it is, if you have something valuable, then the enhancement in the multiple that you can get on media is just incredible. Because you can reach so many people. It's evergreen. It's always out there. Um, the power of technology is just so amazing. Um, if you can harness that and use it and, uh, and put it out there. So... It's been a journey, but I would say that that stuff is stuff that I I enjoy doing it. And it's also been a great ROI for my time and investment.
0: You know, what it does for me when I look at it, when I I, like, I love when you put out, you've got a lot of different content. uh, And and I like that about you and, and sort of your whole persona. But when you put out the real estate centric content, it evokes an emotion at least in me, because it reminds me of home. Mm. It reminds me of where I grew up. So it makes sense to me that people, especially who live in a city, they see this and it just looks, it evokes a feeling. It feels idyllic. It feels relaxing, right? It feels like you're out there, Mm -hmm. but enjoying something that's also luxurious. And that's just me and my perception from watching like three of your freaking videos. So kudos to you on that. Um, Nicole Nixon, who does some contract marketing with us, and I used to work with her at W Energy Software, her big thing, and she does a lot of like early-stage branding for companies, is nobody thinks about the emotional component of what they create. Right, Your brand needs to evoke a feeling in people. And eventually, businesses get too big, and they really start to shy away from that. But especially early-stage, you want people to look at it and feel a certain way. And I think you've done a good job of capturing the essence of whatever Broken Bow Oklahoma is, whether I go there or not, I have an idea because of content that you've put out around what it is. Let's, uh, let's shift yes, a little bit sure. to um, something that pissed a lot of people off that you did. So you put out a mm-hmm. post on, I think it was Twitter, where you said, doesn't matter how much money you have. If you're working after 5 p.m. around the weekends, you pour. And I like there's no way you can't <laughs> feel some type of way about reading that. And some people were like, fuck this guy, I don't like you anymore. And I kind of took a step back and thought about it. And and I agree, I agree and disagree. I, I agree that it's something I aspire to. I disagree because I don't think it would have been possible for me to create the business or businesses that I've created not working past 5 p.m. or on weekends. But I do think that you're going after something, that the true worth and, and wealth that you create is around your happiness and the time that you spend with the people that you actually care about. But I'm curious what kind of right. prompted you to put that out. And was that just a shit post? Or do you truly cut things off at 5 p.m. and shut down your laptop over the weekend so you can spend time with your young family?
1: No, I'm a raging workaholic and the post was for me <laughs> because I sometimes sit there and I think about how, uh, I think about how, you know, I doesn't matter, you know, you can have success or make money. And then sometimes I find myself in situations where I'm working and it's like nighttime or I'm like missing my kids stuff or it's on the weekend on a vacation. And I'm, you know, out on my laptop where everybody's at the pool having fun and I feel poor. I feel like, what's the, what's the point of having money? Like, what's the point of all this work that I've done if I'm sitting here And I didn't mean it. Like, I think the part that pissed people off was that the nine to five things, a bunch of like blue collar people got on there and they were like, I have to work on weekends and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. And I made a tweet underneath it. that was like, just to be clear, like, I don't mean, you know, uh, if you have to work, clearly people have to work weird hours. Like, that's not what I'm saying. Like you're a poor, if you, uh, if you have to work on nights or weekends, but, um, but the sentiment of the post was, and it was actually funny because when I made it, um, I was thinking about myself. Because my wife, we were on a vacation and she was like, I don't want you working, you know, like you need to be, you need to be not working over here. And I was like, all right. You know, so I was trying really hard not to work, but there was a guy that was with us on the vacation and he had some big work thing deadline. He spent the entire trip, um, just on his laptop, like away from his kids, away from his wife. And, um, I just remember thinking like, and he makes really good money. He's a great job and he does really well. And he has a lot of successful investments. I just remember thinking like, what's it all worth? You know, like if that's what you're doing, if you can't even take a vacation with your kids. And, and he's telling me, oh, we haven't been on any vacations in a long time. I'm really excited to go on this. And then the whole time he doesn't even, he's checked out. So I think that that was the, um, the genesis of the post. And It was obviously like, you know, kind of being like, you're poor. I mean, that's the thing about Twitter is you come, become like a caricature of yourself. Right. Um, you say things to engagement farm. I found myself engagement farming less now that I have more followers. Cause I feel like I don't really have anything to prove. And it's like, I mean, I haven't even really been posting as much on Twitter. Cause it's like, I've kind of gotten to a point where like, I feel okay with, um, the growth that it's had. And, uh, and I'm trying to focus more on like higher ROI. It's like, it's one thing to just get like 20,000 people to follow you is another thing, but all you need is like one person, the right person to like yep. see your stuff and somebody that you're, you know, trying to connect with. And so, Uh, I've been doing more on LinkedIn lately. I I feel like I've uh, underutilized the platform. I got kind of jaded by it for a while. So I've been trying to get back on there. And then the other thing, the last thing I'll say on that post is it was like a wildly popular post because it had like a thousand likes, I think, or more. And I got like all these like heartfelt messages from people um, telling me these stories about how they, they resonated with them. And so in some ways, I think maybe those are the best posts. Like if people are taking a hardcore stance on both sides, then maybe, you know, you really struck a chord. Does that make sense?
0: It makes a lot of sense. And it's almost why it's unfortunate that our mutual buddy, DRW, right, isn't out, or at least doesn't have the platform on LinkedIn that he used to have, because he was almost Mm -hmm. intentionally divisive. And he's so, has so much conviction in terms of how he puts things out there. And he's also really, really intelligent. So it's, it makes it tough, right? You're going to feel a certain type of way about his post. And, and now that he's not posting, it's like, um, okay. Like it's, we're missing an edge. I think that the industry needed because there needs to be accountability. People need to be called out.
1: He should have been on, he should have been on Twitter more. Like I've tried to talk to him a bunch on the side and I was like, man, you need to, uh, I think if he would have gone as hard as he did on LinkedIn, on Twitter, like the same yeah. amount of passion, and instead of doing the long form posts, he did the, uh, he made him Twitter threads. I yeah. think he would have a couple hundred thousand followers on, tw- on Twitter right now. Yeah. I told him that. He was like, you yeah, know, anyways, but Interesting. I wish he would start doing more on there.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, he's a genius, like for all intents and purposes, and, and he can communicate really well. And And he like... Like most people, like they create an online caricature or persona of who they are. And I told him, I'm like, you can annoy me sometimes with your online stuff. But then I see him in person. I'm like, oh, I love this dude. I've known this guy for 12 years. He's got a good heart. He's a good golfer. He's a father, right? He's a family man. Um, But you see like people start to to get their own sort of persona and start to believe, okay, I'm going to lean more and more into this on, on how they communicate from a social media perspective. And I think for me, it's, it's what's worked well, at least on LinkedIn is being empathetic, like understanding that there's other people who are in some level of pain. And if you're just constantly putting out posts that are hustle porn or positive, it's not real. Cause that's not who we are as people. (laughs) We've got our own issues. We got our own pains also. Um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah from a partnership perspective. So you said that you kind of brought on um, one guy. I think you said Mark. I know you've done some stuff uh-huh. with, I think, Dave Heikinen. Um, and, and I'm curious how you've been able to do that. Because for me, it's been really hard to bring on equals. I think I've been able to bring on resources that I can provide work to or consult with. But from the true partner perspective, I'm curious like how you've gone about Determining who the right people are and making those work. Because my biggest worry is okay, we're going to split this pie, but it's never going to be fully even. Somebody's always going to do more work. Somebody's going to be driving more of the revenue. There's going to be these challenges that pop up. How have you successfully kind of vetted out finding the right partners and then dividing up the division of labor effectively across those partners? Well,
1: it's a great question. And I'm very passionate about good partnerships. And I've Put some content on this. I would th- say the easiest thing is that I early on I realized that I can have all the pie and it's going to be a lot smaller pie, or right. I can you know have a piece of the pie and it's going to be a huge pie, and so and it's going to be a lot more for me to eat. So I think that that's one view that I had to have. The other view was that when I started, I was twenty seven. The first time I got let go, I was, when I, that happened to me, I was twenty seven, and so there was a sense of uh, it, it made sense for me to partner because it was like. People asking a lot of questions, like, can you really do what you say you're gonna do? Like there wasn't like the baked in credibility of being 20 years, 30 years in the business that you just get because you have that reputation and people That's know right. that you're the real deal. And so I think that having um, you know, the mark thing was very fortunate because like we had worked together and it was a big dispute with us at the beginning. And so probably the reason why it took us, you know, a month or two to incorporate it was like, hey, like, you know, what's the splits gonna be? And I just kind of told him, I was like, look, I'm not doing anything unless I'm like on equal footing with someone. And he's like, well, I've got all this experience and, you know, you're going to blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, but I'm going to be doing a lot of the work because I'm the younger guy and I'm going to be in the weeds, you know, chopping a lot of this wood. And it, even beyond like the work splitting thing, because Mark like more than holds his own and has since we've been a partner and we do good. We're good at different things, which I think is very complimentary. Um, I think that it was like, I just didn't ever want to be in a position where I can get the rug pulled again. Like when I got let like, go, oh, I was like, I, I'm not going to devote my life to something and put myself in a position where I can get, you know, get that taken away from me. Um, and so, uh, so we went in and we were like equal partners at the beginning. And so it's been a really good structure. Uh, we have to manage by consensus, which can be painful sometimes. And when we first got, to, you know, early in the partnership, we would get in like fights and stuff and we haven't in a long time. Um, but like, you know, it's sounded like, a, it's like a work spouse. And that's one thing. And so even with like our other ventures, like the real estate stuff, like the Bitcoin stuff, um, most of the things I do, we try to be like equal or as equal as we can with the people that I work for. And there's actually like a reason there too. Um, I think a partnership is an incredible form of leverage. Like it's a multiplier on the work. And if everybody is aligned, then you, everybody's pulling on the rope at the same strength and everybody's success and failure is in an equal footing. Um, there's a lot of people that have a different philosophy with this, like they don't agree with that. Um, but what I've seen is that alignment in partnerships is huge, um, and I think that that is one of the biggest reasons why partnerships fail. Um, the worst thing in a deal is when you know somebody's making a lot more money than somebody else, but they put in, but they started it together and they work the same amount. Like that's just it's not going to last. Um, and you see it in all across, like you see it with bands, for example. Um, a lot of bands will have like the singer songwriter or whoever, and because they're the songwriter they get the majority of the royalties because that's how royalties work. And what band managers will tell you, I watched an episode of Rogan, and he sat down with the lead singer of the uh, Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins. And he said that early on in his career, he was writing the songs. And his manager, they came to him, and they said, all right, like, how are we gonna, who are we going to credit on these songs for the writer? Because that's who's going to get the majority of the money. And the manager told him, he goes, the worst mistake you can make is putting just yourself as the writer for these songs, he goes, your band will never last. He's like, you will. Mm. And sure enough, within, if he did it, he said, no, he's like, screw that. You know, I'm going to get all the money. And within, you know, ever, however many years the band broke up. And not only did they break up, they became like blood feud. Like they hated each other. And for years they were like stewing each other. And just became went from being best friends to being like enemies effectively because of one decision um, to not split things equally. And that to me, and I already knew this when I heard that episode, but that was like, there you go. There's another example of it. And I think that in business, you try to use leverage the best you can, uh, whether that's financial leverage, like debt, if you're in a uh, real estate deal, or whether it's like uh, technology as a form of leverage, right? Like we talked about with the media stuff. Um, but at a, pers- at a corporate level, I think partnerships are some of the best leverage that you can have because it can just amplify what you're doing so much. And people always ask me like, how do you do all these things? And I'm like, I don't. Like I have really amazing partners and I have really great and we have great employees who we try to give them equity or at least give them a feeling of ownership via their compensation that they're when the company's doing well, they get rewarded. Uh, we try to make alignment. We try to keep flat structures. And I think that so people are like, how do you do it? And I'm like, I don't, I have all these other people. Like I might be the figurehead of it, but there's no way I could do all these things by myself. I've just been fortunate enough to try to surround myself with really great people and put structures in place to where everybody can kind of thrive together. Um, so that's what I would say. It's hard though. Relationships with partners are really tough. I mean, you really need to be picky. Uh, you really need to know the person. Uh, I think one good thing with a lot of the partnerships that I've done are they're all people that I've worked with before. So yeah. like the real estate stuff, we've they've been on the other side of the table for me. Like they were at a client, uh, some of my partners there. Then they left that client and they came and did some consulting for us. So we've been like on both sides of the table. We're like, they're my boss. And then we were their boss, like a couple of these partners. Right. And then it was like, you know, after five or six years of working together, you recognize the person's strengths, their weaknesses, like how they work, like what the you know, what they're about, right. And the same thing with Mark, my other partner, it's like he was my VP, like I reported to him. So like, I knew like, how he operated. And so I think people always warn about, oh, don't do business with friends. Um, And it's like, well, it depends on what kind of friend they are, like, if they're a friend that you've made via working together and going through some shit together then I actually think those can be really good partnerships because you know that person already, right? Like it's not just somebody that you're going in. um, If if it's just a straight up friend, like from high school or something, you've never worked together with them. I I would say be cautious with that. But if it's someone that's a colleague or a friend that you've met through forging through, you've already forged through ups and downs. Right. And so um, that's kind of how I viewed it. I, I try to, and we've had bad partnerships too. We had a a partnership in our, one of our companies that we had another company that was, I won't go into the full story of it, but they, came in and had a minority interest in one of our companies and it was terrible and they were just bad people and, and they sucked. And I've seen both sides of how it can not work out. So um, anyways, I'll stop on that, but let you respond.
0: No, I mean, you actually, there's a lot of, of good, Max, that you just brought in there. And I, I want to talk about the piece at the end, which is I have a healthy amount of fear in bringing in investors for any of my businesses. And now, of course, for some of the capital intensive stuff, you probably just simply don't have the liquid to do it. So you have to take on some form of form of investment or debt. But when doing startups where I can scale and live through the revenue growth, I just don't want those other voices coming in, right? Especially from a minority mm-hmm. standpoint and effectively telling me what to do because there's so much PTSD around 19 years in the working world of people telling me what to do and me disagreeing with it so it's almost like i have this wall put up right. and somebody comes in and says you should do this it's like you should fuck off right <laughs> i know what i'm doing right right but but i i find it fascinating when i hear okay and, and i think it probably comes down to experience and then finding the right investment partners but like anything like you're going to have to experience it and learn it and there's probably going to be some negative partners like you you mentioned with the minority owner here previously
1: Sometimes it's good, though. What I was going to say is that it's good to hear whenever, you know, it can be a positive to someone tell you that you're they don't agree with your idea. And I think that with my partner, Mark, it's like uh, I'm always kind of like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And he's always like pump the brakes a little bit, you know, like you got to get me there. Like I'm not there yet. And so sometimes that's been frustrating. But other times, in retrospect, I think it's helped me uncover a lot of blind spots that I had that maybe I knew that I had, but like didn't want to. fess up to having and it was like you know he's very like candid about these are your weaknesses this is something that you're not good at or whatever and like it's just point blank will tell it to you and i think having somebody around you or multiple people around you that can like keep you honest in that way um can be a positive but at the same time it's like it's a relationship so it can also cause things to blow up and i've seen people blow up because of bad partnerships too so it's a balance
0: i just want raving fans and people that'll kiss my ass no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. So, here, real quick, we got about two minutes left. I want to do rapid fire with some questions and then have you share uh, how people can find you at your various different uh, online locales. So, one, what is your favorite place to eat dinner in Oklahoma City?
1: Ooh, uh, the best steak place, I think, is probably the ranch. We like Love that. Um, in Edmond, we go to. Uh, There's a couple different places. My wife loves Charleston's in Edmond. It's a pretty easy one, staple, and uh, that's probably her favorite. So we go there a lot, but the ranch is probably the best steakhouse. Um, But yeah, yeah, it depends on the mood and it depends on the type of food, but I have to almost categorize that by a type of dish.
0: I've been to the ranch twice and ended up closing business deals afterwards both times. So obviously it's a good place to butter people up and have a good steak. I love the ranch. Two, uh, your favorite place to take a vacation.
1: Yeah, I love skiing. You know, I think that uh I try to go every year if I can. I like Crested Butte. It's where I grew up right. skiing at. Um we didn't have any really thing there. We would just drive there, my dad would take us there. And I don't know why he picked there, but it's got a special place for me. Um my wife would probably say the beach, but I like the mountains. So I'll go nice. with that.
0: Yeah. Oklahomans love those western Colorado resorts. Crested Butte is one, maybe Purgatory. And and ironically it's like pretty far from me and also far from you, but not that much further than it is for me to get to a place like Crested view, believe it or not. Um, okay. Final question. Yeah. What do you think all of this looks like in five years? Is this going to be like Gagliardi, Gagliardi enterprises where you've got your hands still at a whole bunch of things, or do you think that one or two of these things is really going to take off and that's where your focus is going to be?
1: Really, really hard question to answer. Um, I don't know. I think that hopefully I'm still surrounded by the people that I'm around in five years. And hopefully, um, and I'm not, I wouldn't say this to Mark's face. I think he needs to retire. Some he's, you know, pushing. He'll be almost 70 then. Oh, wow. And so hopefully he's like made enough money to where he's, uh, just chilling on a beach somewhere. I, I never, I actually have a fear of him not being my partner because it's been such a great partnership and I don't want it to stop. But, um, for his sake, you know, hopefully he's, can slow down a little bit um, but in terms of like you know the business we have today in the Encova front we've got a lot of really great people that um, that aren't partner level that that are going to be they stick around and I've got I've surrounded myself with a great group of guys the ink and gals as well um, here at our company that are crushing it and I want them to be here and I want them to be more of a vested equity interest in the company and so I hope we keep doing what we're doing I hope that the tech platform can grow. And um, I really think it's it's really cool what we've built. And so I would love to um, see that platform grow. I think on the real estate stuff, uh, hopefully that development is a full-blown neighborhood in five years and I can walk around with the kids and they'll remember back when it was raw land and, and now it's this awesome community. Um, that would be great. I think for the uh, podcast stuff, I just want to keep, keep it up, man. I want to keep it up and I want to be doing it in five years. I think that was the big thing with the rebrand was really more than anything, just giving me something broad enough to where I can talk to whoever I want. And I hope I'm, you know, hope I'm 500 episodes or whatever, 400 something episodes in um, by then. I'm at 171. So hopefully I'm at 500 plus episodes and that I'm continuing to get to talk to really cool people. And if those things happen, um, I'll be very happy in five years. And I hope everybody's healthy and all that stuff too. So that's uh, obviously yeah. um, Mo- the main things.
0: Most importantly, yeah. You know, I I think that the the podcast thing, you know, as you know, most podcasts die at like ten episodes. That's that's the way that it goes, like ninety yeah. percent or something like that. And I was really fortunate right. to have Tim Lozer, obviously who passed last year, as as an awesome partner. And I think both of us, it, you know, it was sort of a, a struggle to get over the hump of maybe thirty or forty episodes. But once we did, this was going to be a thing we were really going to do forever. And I knew when yeah. I took a break and was coming back that this wasn't going to be an eight or nine or 10 episode thing. Like I'm going to do this once a week. So I totally applaud you for that. And you know, it's, it's sort of like a, a dripping roast, right? Cause every time you have a new guest on, you get a couple new listeners and a few of them come back. Right. And it just sort of, you know, right. steamrolls from there. Where can people find right. you, your, your distillery and energy, uh, real estate, like where's the easiest place for people to find out all the crazy stuff you got going on Max?
1: Yeah, I think on Twitter, I've got my a lot of the links to those things in the bio. And so that's just a Max underscore Gagliardi. And then obviously on LinkedIn, it's just my name. Um, the website's Ancova.com, uh, A-N-C-O-V-A.com. The resort that we're working on is MountainForkResort.com. Uh, and then the distillery is Woodworks Distilling, I think. WoodworksDistilling.com. Um, we've got a newsletter on Substack. It's Ancova Energy Markets newsletter we put out once a week. Uh, just kind of highlights on the markets, what's going on with oil and gas. We, uh, yeah, those are the main places and I'd encourage people to, like, I always try to respond like that story about Aubrey. Like I really do my best, even if it's just a, Hey, no, thanks. Uh, best of luck. Like I really try to, uh, to respond to people when they reach out. So if anybody wants to, I'll try my best and, uh, if you want to connect on any of this stuff. I'd love to talk to you.
0: And yeah, this is, uh, thank you for that. This is going to come out after empower, but I assume I'll see you at the Bitcoin, mining conference in Houston, Digital Wildcatters is putting on. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Max, for coming on, sharing a little bit of wisdom and being vulnerable enough to share some of your wins and failures from the past. Uh, Hopefully other aspiring entrepreneurs can take something from it and uh, hope to, to see your businesses grow. You're doing great stuff, man.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. It was fun.